Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we bring you a topic that we've wanted to do for quite a while, especially if you get our newsletter (laughs) and see how many times it has been (laughs) We're really doing it this time, for real. So over the past year or two, there has been news coverage about the repatriation of collections of Benin bronzes from museums, mostly in Europe and the U.S., uh, back to Nigeria. The story of how those bronzes, which are actually brasses, turns out, were looted, isn't an unusual one, unfortunately. It was during a British colonial military incursion in 1897. And so we'll get there. But first and foremost, this is an opportunity to talk about the people that made these statues and other objects, the role that these bronzes played in community life, and the historical context of the repatriation efforts. So if you want to get real, real deep into the the history of sort of British colonial efforts to expand the empire in in Africa and um, the sort of full deep context of the Benin bronzes. You can check out the book, The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution by Dan Hicks. And Amber is going to put a link in the show notes that sure will am. take you to our, to our, right to our affiliate bookshop link and you can, if you purchase the book or any other book through that link, we, we get a little, we I see a little a bit of that. Get a taste of that. Yeah. Mama gets a taste. So, yeah. Mm. So you can, you can get this book. I'll also include um, the World Cat entry. So if you have access to yeah. a library system that can get it for you. Um, cool. And it's a really, it's incredibly well-researched and just a caveat i guess it's it's so dense like it is so dense with anthropological thought which is for lots of people that's a really good thing for for me it was very difficult <laughs> it's a really good book though yeah so um not uh not the most accessible text but yeah. a high quality text um, yes yeah not everything is intended to be accessible which is what it is. So let's start with, um, so let's, we're going to get our Benin straight here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the Benin bronzes. What's up with Benin? So we're talking about the kingdom of Benin in what is today Nigeria. Um, It's not the present day country of Benin, which used to be Dahomey. We're in Western Africa on the coast, just under the widest part of the continent, snuggled right up before the curve where the Western coast turns southward. So for the remainder of this episode, when we say Benin, we're talking about the kingdom of Benin itself and Benin City, the heart of said kingdom. Not the 
modern political state of Benin. Nothing to do with the modern political state of Benin. <laughs> Which was Dahomey. Okay? It was. Great. Okay. So Benin's predecessor was the Edo Kingdom. The people who lived in this area and continued to do so when Benin City was built uh, were the Edo people. The city wasn't known as Benin until the 15th century when the Portuguese used that as the local name for the king's administrative center, Ubinu. Locals eventually adopted Benin as the pronunciation. So Benin, Ubinu, I could see how like sure, language barriers and transcription errors and like a general like disrespect uh, could yeah. could lead one from Ubinu to Benin. I'm just um, going to call it this. It's easier. Yeah. Right. Um, The city was in a rainforest, which is a tactical advantage um, for the inhabitants, not the rainforest. Um, The thick vegetation (laughs) only allowed people to travel on narrow paths. So it would have been really difficult to sneak up on the city with any kind of large armed force. Um, The rainforest was also dense with resources. So you got fish from the rivers and creeks, got animals for hunting, um, like lots of leaves for making like thatched roofs, uh, plants for, for, you know, medicine and kind of nutritional supplements, um, ivory (laughs) for carving and trading and wood for boat building. Um, So among other things. uh, Yeah. Right. (laughs) Wood for boat, like, (laughs) <laughs> what are you doing about the wood? wood. Uh, making boats. Sure, boats. It's not boats. making anything else. But yeah, so lots of like lots of uh, resources. Resource rich area. Yeah, to um, support a sort of a population and a society. Um, mm-hmm. Hunting remained a part of life in the kingdom uh, because most domesticated animals um, had succumbed to uh, encephalitis lethargica, lethargica, lethargica um, which is a disease <laughs> spread by tsetse flies. Um, so after centuries of exposure, though, some animals, such as cattle and goats, developed a resistance. So they were farmed in Benin a bit later in time. Um, so that's. It's really interesting that they like went from sort of domesticated uh, flocks, herds Mm -hmm. to hunting because it just wasn't, it wasn't an option. Yeah, I think, yeah, I got the sense that, that domestication or the, the husbandry of domesticated animals was attempted, but at first it did not go great. Yeah. Um. Some remnants of Benin City remain today in the form of massive earthworks. Uh, are so big. So so big. Uh, so, archaeology so big. of those of these earthworks began in the mid 1950s, and survey and recording continued through the 1970s. The city consists of a 15 kilometer long massive city wall up to 20 meters deep. Is that Anna? What? It's like in 60 length. feet. What's 15 kilometers and 20 meters? Oh, uh, like eight miles long and yeah, 60 feet deep slash tall. All right. Big. They were constructed with ditches dug around the area. And then the dirt that had been removed was used to build up ramparts, ramparts um, at the top. (laughs) I don't know how to say that word. You know, hooves, horns. I don't know how to say that word. (laughs) Ramparts. It's ramparts. Ramparts. Okay. Um, And and then the dirt that had been removed was used to build up ramparts at the tops of the ditches. A set of inner interlocking ring walls make 
uh, not Molly, make up about 16,000 additional kilometers of earthworks. This massive wall encloses over 500 interconnected settlements and a total of about 6,500 square kilometers. Like I cannot express to you just how it's so big. It is difficult to fathom Yeah, what a so, project this was. So five major royal sites are grouped in the center of this whole formation and all the major roads converge on that central royal area. Um, the 1974 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records described the walls yep. of Benin City and its surrounding kingdom as the world's largest earthworks carried out prior to the mechanical era. Era, not error. Uh, <laughs> era. According to estimates by English science writer Fred Pierce, Benin City walls were at one point, quote, four times longer than the Great Wall of China and consumed a hundred times more material than the Great Pyramid of Cheops, end quote, who was Khufu, Um, which like, cool, if you want it to be a competition. Uh, But that is interesting. It's not one, but it, it sort of puts it, it helps to put it in perspective. Yeah. Pierce goes on to write that they took an estimated 150 million hours of digging to construct. Um, not by one person. Um, no. And are perhaps the single largest archaeological phenomenon on the planet, end quote. Interesting. Um, so mm-hmm. a fascinating nugget of information here. Um, ethno, this was so cool. Ethnomathematician. That's a thing you can be. Job ethnomathematician uh ron eglash has discussed the planned layout of the city using fractals as the basis not only in the city itself and the villages but even in the rooms of houses Um, he commented that quote when europeans first came to africa they considered the architecture very disorganized and thus primitive it never occurred to them that the africans might have been using a form of mathematics they hadn't even discovered yet end quote um yeah that so, is, yeah, that, that is really interesting. Yeah. And so uh, Ron Eglish has written a book called, I think, I think it's called African Fractals. Mm. Um, and I think that concept is super interesting. So by 1200 to 1300 CE, Benin was already a flourishing city. Before European expeditions started poking along the coast of West Africa, goods were traded from the Mediterranean across the Sahara to large trading centers such as Timbuktu in the savannas and Benin, the city, in the forest regions. The most valuable product exported to Europe and Asia from West Africa was gold, which was mined in regions to the west of Benin. It was the search for gold that led European expeditions across the West African coast to find a way around the African-controlled Sahara trade routes. The Portuguese reached the coast of Benin in 1489, establishing relations that lasted for 400 years. Early descriptions of Benin City by Europeans portrayed it as a place free of crime and hunger, with large streets and houses kept clean, a city filled with courteous, honest people, and run by a centralized and highly sophisticated bureaucracy. I can't, anytime we hear anything about anybody describing anything travel related, (laughs) I will always think about the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. Like talking about 
like going this part's Arabia fine this part's like, fine taxes just, are a little high just this like, part sucks yeah just like the apoplectic yelp like trip advisor review and being like yep. this place is full of like criminals and pirates and it sucks and it's just like, <laughs> i would give it no stars if i could oh yeah so um yeah that yep. okay great that sounds like better review than the erythrian scene <laughs> that that yeah, yeah okay cool yeah, um, sure. So I'm going to pull a quote now from the Dallas Museum of Art. Quote, Benin City had a well-articulated social structure. The Oba was the most important figure in government and the interactions between the king, so the king is the Oba, and his subjects was governed by complex rules of etiquette. Patronage of the arts, royal architecture, and the establishment of annual festivals and rituals all solidified the royal power of the Oba. However, his power also depended on many other chiefs and officials who governed the city and its surrounding villages. There were two kinds of chiefs in the city, palace chiefs and town chiefs. The post of palace chief was an inherited position as a senior representative of a clan, while that of town chief was a merit-based appointment and was responsible for the administration of the province. The latter town chiefs also represented the interests of their people rather than those of the king. During the 15th and 16th centuries, CE, the rulers of Benin conquered their neighbors to control the supply of goods traded with the Europeans. So the king controlled the trade of slaves, ivory, pepper, skins, and other important goods with the profits going to the support of his court and government. And merchants could only trade with his permission. So this is incredibly important for the whole uh, Benin bronze story, is that the king held the power to refuse or accept trade from other nations. Europeans were seldom allowed to travel inland or visit Benin City, so they could not trade without the king's authority. Benin Kingdom's trade of enslaved people to the Portuguese took place mainly during the 15th century military expansion. Once this expansion was complete, the sale of slaves was abandoned until the 18th century when the kingdom began to disintegrate due to internal strife, at which time slave trading resumed. Those being trafficked to other locations in Africa and to Portuguese colonies in Brazil were people who had been conquered by Benin and made part of the kingdom or sent as tribute to the king. Two of the most significant products which the Portuguese merchants offered to the Benin kingdom were brass and guns. Although West Africans had invented the smelting of copper and zinc ores, as well as brass casting, by at least the 10th century, West Africa could not produce enough metal to supply the casting industry in Benin City. So there was a, a need for material, but not a lack of technological knowledge. Mm -hmm. The shortage created a ready market for Portuguese brass. The guns that Portuguese merchants brought to West Africa were the first to enter the continent. Okay, end quote. Let's take a quick break, and then we will talk about that metal casting. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Yeah. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. And we are back. Um, so here's the thing about traditional bronze casting in Benin. It's still happening. So um, which so it's not, not a Yep. It's not a lost it's not a lost art. Lost art, but it is lost wax. Uh so uh craftsmen and like they are almost always men in this uh in this traditionally, context. yeah. Um so Craftspersons have been creating metal artwork in the same tradi- tradition using the lost wax method for around 800 years. Um, this is a method that was also used by the ancient Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians in ancient China and Southeast Asia. Not saying that they all got it from each other. Just this is a a pretty trusty way to uh, cast bronze. Is that what you do? You cast it. Yeah, to, to create yeah, to create okay, a mold and, and cast bronze. Yes. Casting. Casting bronze. Early on in the study of archaeology and history of Benin, it was wrongly assumed that uh, knowledge of metallurgy arrived with Portuguese contact, but in fact metal had been a part of local technology since around five hundred BCE when the first evidence of ironworking appears in the archaeological record. Um, I'm going to read a brief excerpt from an article from Artnet News by Barnaby Phillips, who wrote a book about the Benin Bronzes. Uh, Quote, Imagine a sculptor in Benin City wished to make a ceremonial head of an oba. He would begin by shaping a solid core of sandy clay with his hands, maybe using a wooden or metal file to refine it. Today, as in the past, the casters get their clay from the banks of the Ikpoba River, which runs through the, through the north of Benin City. Once he has shaped the core into a rough form, he covers it in a thin layer of beeswax. Now he introduces detail, detail, um, not just in sculpting facial features, but also perhaps by adding extra wax threads to make the beads of a headdress or the coral beaked coat an oba might wear. The wax must be soft enough to allow such detail, but hard enough to keep its shape. Next, the caster covers his wax model in finely grained clay. He is trying to ensure this outer covering takes a faithful impression of the wax beneath it. He then adds a layer of heavier clay to the outside while ensuring there is small furrow through which the wax can escape. He dries the piece in the sun, then bakes it in 
charcoal embers until it reaches such a heat that he can pour away the melted wax. Now the critical moment. The caster takes molten metal, bronze or brass, from a furnace and pours it into the mold left behind the left behind by the departed wax, filling every hollow and tiny crevice, end quote. Um, so that's really interesting because I never actually knew how the lost wax technique mm-hmm. happened. Like it had been described to me and I know mm. you've done it um, in mm-hmm. classes and stuff. Was it mm-hmm. in Jim's class? Like did you, that you guys like, or did you do it in an art class? No, I Was did. It in- I did it. I took an art class. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. And just like Jim freaked out that you like knew how to do it. Okay. That was what happened. <laughs> Cause I remember there was a connection between a class <laughs> you took with Jim, right? And, and the Lost West technique. But yeah, I, I like, yeah, I know about it. Like it is something that as, as we, as I mentioned ago, like mm-hmm. it's, it's around. The members of these craft guilds are not what our pal Barnaby called formally trained, whatever that means. I guess they like didn't go to school and weren't like union represented. Um, they learn their skills from mm. older family members as the tradition is passed down. So a crafting tradition that has lasted for centuries, plus an assemblage of artifacts that are thought of as highly valuable and desirable have made authenticating historic bronze pieces like the stolen Benin bronzes a real challenge. And so historic in this context is pre 1897. Mm. So there are several things complicating the process. First, the metal. Benin cast artifacts are typically called Benin bronzes, but they are now referred to as brass. Although technically, the actual correct term would be a copper alloy. (laughs) So more accurately, they are brass, not bronze, but even more, more accurately, copper alloy. The composition of a sample of objects at the National Museum of African Art at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. ranged from 64 to 94% copper, 0 to 7% tin, 1 to 17% lead, and 0 to 16% zinc, as well as small quantities of arsenic, silver, antimony, and nickel. But Benin bronze was the term used for the artifacts looted and brought to Europe early on, and that term stuck. That's the first thing. Would that be um, related to that idea that they got it from the Portuguese and what the Portuguese had been working with was bronze and sort of it was like attributed to that? That's probably a part of it. Yeah. Or were the people who were talking about it and gave it its name like not familiar with metallurgy? I I think it's a combination of those two, but probably more the latter. It's just like it's bronze colored. Okay. You know? Um, So the second complicating factor is both provenience and provenance. Um, Most Benin cast art has clay core residue as part of the casting process, the lost wax method. So some of that clay, it gets caught in little crevices in the bronze. The color of this soil ranges from a red brown to a gray or black burnt clay. The clay stuck in crevices is material left over from the casting process or accumulated dirt from centuries of storage. That dirt is material that can be dated, and we'll get to that part. However, the objects are rarely connected to excavation sites where stratigraphy methods and in-situ assessments can be made. And to some extent, that's because these objects were made for display or made for sort of like household display of, mm-hmm. of ritual figures. Or So they're not sort of 
deposited. They're used. Yeah. They're in. They aren't like excavated. So, like necessarily. No, they just. Yeah, that's not the context that they're found in. So yeah. it means that you can date them, but that date is sort of floating in space yeah. with no with no. That's context. a really that's a really great point that I don't consider enough. Um, personally, I re- I remember I was at I might have been at the Met or I think it might have been the Met, and there was something that was from, um, like something medieval. There was like like medieval like or like late <laughs> Gothic like art. Uh, it was like in in like mm-hmm. the very like Christy sections of of the art museum. Um yeah, no, I'm familiar with that section. Yeah. Yeah, and there was like a like a a standing candelabra and it was cast iron. Yeah. And I was just like what? Like I couldn't get my head around the fact that something had not been lost for 800 years. Um, no, it's there the whole time. <laughs> it was just there the whole time until like somebody like took it or bought mm-hmm. it and then like sold it to the museum. And I, um, and it's one of yep. those things that like, if you like just kind of mention it or you just talk about it or, you know, think about it, like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, sure. Like I've been, I have been in buildings that have been in use for like, centuries if not millennia like i've i've been yeah in like these fixtures mm-hmm. yeah and just like sure but i don't think about it enough because i think about things as sort of like the that you that something has a life and then it is deposited and then it is excavated mm-hmm. um and like or it is used and it is taken um, I don't think about mm-hmm. the like, which is, um, which, which is, that's informed by my sort of implicit, like kind of ethnocentrism and like my kind of like global North, like, sure. Like settler perspective of just like stuff is, stuff is lost and then later found or it is preserved and then stolen or, or threatened. Like some things just like exist. Some things just <laughs> sit there for a while. Something, yeah. yeah. Th- some things like have yep. the, have the life of the object's life that they, uh, we're looking for like as like the creators and so like yeah. that's a really that's a really great thing to remind me of and to remind other people of that sometimes like storage like doesn't mean like in the like cockles of a museum um it could mean yeah or like on a wall caches yeah like, yeah it's interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thank you the third complicating factor is that um in in these palace contexts where most of these brass bronze objects were displayed routine cleaning was done by attendants or household help but in most cases this was perfunctory oh and the debris of ages took its toll on these objects it's a phrase i that just like really hit me hard for some reason (laughs) So once they were removed from their original setting after 1897, they were subjected to severe cleaning to like save them for museums. Uh, They were also often coated with oil and wax uh, just as like a protective measure. Okay. Um, A a sort of misguided protective measure. And even modern. Oxidizing? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Although sometimes they were also coated with modern pigments that mimicked a heavy patina oh, just no. to, to give it that, that little something to age yeah. them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. So 
Yeah. So it's once you have something that is allegedly a Benin bronze, you have all of these things to contend with. You have like you don't have a consistent makeup of the metal to look for. Like it's not between different crafts craftsmen. It's not the same, the same recipe. Um, the, the provenience is what you don't know where it came from necessarily. Um, in terms of like, like you said, it's not excavated, so it doesn't have that kind of context. And also if it was stolen, they didn't really record where things were stolen from. It was just sort of the palace. And then also you have this, these potential alterations after the objects were taken because these bronzes have so much complicating them and, and it's very difficult to authenticate them. Um, there's a really, really great paper that will have the, the link to um, called the dating game, the scientific analysis of Benin copper alloy art. And so this, it says explicitly in the article, this is an attempt to break down the difficulties of authenticating Benin bronze works in layman's terms to like engage with the issues and kind of discuss the current methods available and assess the, the helpfulness of each. And one of the things that this article cites as maybe the best way to uh, date and authenticate these artifacts is thermoluminescence dating. TL dating, thermoluminescence dating, requires those little bits of leftover clay that the bronze was poured into. So those little bits of clay caught in the crevices um, can give us the date of when the bronze was poured or the brass or the copper alloy. Clay is a mixture of small crystals with elemental impurities. So it's usually uh, silica or hydrogen, and these crystals have little impurities in their structure, which is the nature of a crystal. The atoms in clay crystals are held together in specific arrangements by the charges in their electrons. So they start off in like a solid little grid arrangement. But by nature, crystals are not perfect. The atoms suffer a loss of entropy, which is randomness, sort of like random change. Um, and that creates a tiny gap in the crystal structure in which electrons can become trapped. So within this sort of matrix of molecules within the clay crystals, there are some electrons that are just sort of held in place. So thermoluminescence testing uses these trapped electrons to determine when those particles were last subjected to very, very high heat, i.e. when they last touched molten metal. So you take a sample of the little clay crumbs left over in a bronze and you heat it super, super hot. And those trapped electrons get excited because you are giving them energy by heating them. You are bestowing energy upon them. You're transferring energy to them and they get excited and they wiggle out of their traps. And as they do that, they put out energy in the form of light. That amount of light gets recorded and it can be mathematically converted to the amount of time since the bronze was cast. So the bronze art... And also art made from wood, ivory, and other materials, uh, for which Benin City was famous, was everywhere. Um, the art had various functions. Uh, much of it was to glorify the Oba, or you know, the ruler, the, the title of the ruler. When a king died, his successor would order that a bronze head be made of his predecessor. That's uh, nice. Yeah, sure. Um, approximately 170 of these sculptures exist, and the oldest date from the 12th century. But there were other types of art, and the bronze pieces in particular numbered in the thousands. 
the Benin bronzes are more naturalistic than most African art of the period, uh, which which means that they um, look are more less like stylized. Yeah, yeah, more like an actual person. So you have like I mean, there's a continuum from abstract to mm-hmm. natural, um, and mm-hmm. so they, I'm not saying that it's like a sculptor who. Michelangelo, who Rodan, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a sculptor, any sculptor. <laughs> you, who, you picked two really good ones. Uh, right. Yeah, no, it's who not. do like very, like, like very natural, like real individual identifiable yeah, true features. to life. Yeah. Like it, not just true to life, mm-hmm. but like of like what a human looks like, but like what this specific, like what the model looks yeah. like. Um, and then at the yeah. other end of the continuum, you've got like completely abstract sort of like a, um, like a stick with two sticks coming off of it and being like, it's a lady. Um, like that, that kind of like where it's more like a metaphor. We've experienced both ends of that continuum. Yeah. So this is closer to one. So we're not saying that you are mm-hmm. like going to meet a guy that looks like a Benin bronze. Uh, but we're saying that like mm-hmm. you can look at a Benin bronze and be like, definitely a guy. Um, like kind of a human guy. Um, so, the bronze surfaces are designed to highlight contrast between light and dark metal. So the features of many of the heads yeah. are exaggerated from natural proportions. So again, like, or like guys got a nose. That's a real nose, but it's not, it's a bit more nose than one might expect. Yeah. Um, so another part, nosier. Yeah. Mm, another important aspect of the works is their exclusivity. Um, so property was reserved only for certain social classes. Um, in general, only the king could own objects made from bronze and ivory. Sometimes, though, he would allow high-ranking nobility to have hanging masks and various adornments made of bronze or brass and ivory. Coral was also a royal material. Neck rings made from coral were a symbol of nobility, and use was granted specifically by the oba. Um, so you, you got to get your coral permit. Um, yeah. And, sorted. and earlier you mentioned it, something you quoted, um, mentioned the Oba wearing a coral coat. So like other people could wear, you know, like a neck ring or, you know, a small piece of coral jewelry, but the Oba gets all the coral. Yeah. And he, he mm-hmm. meets it out as he mm-hmm. sees fit. Um, among the styles of bronze art, were large plaques decorated with various scenes or portraits. Uh, These were mounted on the palace walls throughout the royal center. The backgrounds on the front of most of the plaques are incised with a leafy pattern called um, Ebe Ame or the river leaf design. The leaves were used in healing rites by priestesses of Olokun, uh, the god of the sea. Uh, some of the reliefs represent important battles of the 16th century wars of expansion. So by the kingdom of Benin, not that the Europeans, although the Portuguese were involved. Um, yep. However, the majority depict dignitaries wearing ceremonial dress. Most of the plaques portray static figures, either alone in pairs or in small groups arranged around a central figure. Many of the figures depicted in the plaques can only be identified through their clothing and emblems. This tells us of rank and function, but but not name. Um, there have been attempts to link some of the depictions with actual historical figures, but at that point, it's mostly speculation. Because um, yeah. again, we're not, it's not 
sort of it is it's naturalistic but it's not like yeah it's not photorealistic uh, wearing like a hello my name is <laughs> sticker let's take one more quick break um, then we'll talk about the looting of the bronzes and the aftermath and where things currently stand Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. It's the 1890s and all the various, I know, and all the various European powers are fighting for control over African territory and trade. And the British really, really, really wanted access to all that gold and ivory and other riches from Western Africa. And so in 1897, a smallish group of British officials and traders headed to Benin to attempt to establish their own corner of the trade market. Now, remember we mentioned before that the Oba completely dictated whether certain powers were allowed to trade in his territory. And this was in direct opposition to the Oba's instructions for an embargo on British trade that he'd made in 1896. So the unwelcome British party was ambushed and the members were killed. And so in retaliation on January 12th, 1897, Rear Admiral Harry Rawson, commander of the Royal Navy forces at the Cape of Good Hope, was appointed by the British Admiralty to invade the Kingdom of Benin, capture the Benin Oba, and destroy Benin City. The operation was named the Benin Punitive Expedition. So this was a deliberate invasion with the intent of destroying this. It was a revenge hit. Yeah, it was it, it was just punishment and, and yeah, sort of a punitive a yeah. a flexing of like imperial muscle to be like you yeah. you aren't the one who makes the decisions in this relationship. Yeah. So the Oba was eventually captured by the British. He was deposed and exiled with two of his 80 wives. Most of the plunder from the city was kept by members of the expedition. Some 2500 that the 2,500, that's the official numbers. Uh, some people estimate it to be probably a lot more. Um, so some 2,500 religious artifacts, Benin visual history, mnemonics, and artworks were sent to Britain. They include um, over a thousand. here is? Is like a depiction of an event or a um, story from a culture's uh, oral traditions that is meant to. And so it's in, like cues, like, like sort of. The, yeah, the yeah. mnemonic like there are sort of like a series of images and we're like ah this is the first part this is the second like sort of to yeah keep yeah you on track like for mm-hmm. is that what it's like to go yeah along it's like with some kind of like bard tradition or sort of like oral yeah recitation yeah because okay. in west africa like that's the the sort of heart of the griot tradition and, and a lot of histories are oral there but it's it's kind of in the same way that stained glass windows in churches are like you know here's the story of Isaac, but in case you don't know how to read or in case you just need a little okay. push to remember the story of Isaac, here's what's happening. Are stained glass windows and cathedrals considered mnemonics? I don't know. Okay. I I think of them that way, but I I don't know enough about art to okay. to know if that's 
you know, legit. Um, these artworks included over a thousand metal plaques and sculptures collectively known as the Benin Bronzes. The Admiralty confiscated and auctioned off the war booty to defray the cost of the expedition. About 40% of that art was accessioned to the British Museum, while other works were given to individual members of the armed forces as spoils of war, and the remainder was sold at auction by the Admiralty. Most of the Benin bronzes sold at auction were purchased by museums, mainly in Germany. The dispersal of Benin artworks to museums around the world catalyzed the beginnings of a long and slow European reassessment of the value of West African art. The Benin art was copied and the style integrated into the art of many European artists and thus had a strong influence on the early formation of modernism in Europe. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Impactful, but in like a really terrible way. I mean, yeah, like they, um, it's, it's extractive. um, Yeah. But that's. Mm Wow. Wow. So Benin City has been calling for the return of its artifacts for decades, but a key moment came in the 1970s when, when the organizers of a major festival of black art and culture in Lagos, Nigeria, asked the British Museum for the return of one prized item, a 16th century ivory mask of a famous Oba's mother. They wanted the mask to serve as the centerpiece of the 1977 event, but the British Museum said it was too fragile to travel. Nigeria's news media, however, reported that the British government had been perfectly willing to lend the mask, but they also asked for $3 million of insurance, a cost so high it was seen by Nigeria as a slap in the face. That incident is still fresh in some Nigerians' minds more than 40 years later. So they they were like, you may borrow your like cultural patrimony if you give us $3 million dollars. Like, yeah, I think they set the price like so hold. high that, yeah, like they set so, the price so high that, that the actual like transaction would be impossible. So they were right. basically saying, no, you can't have it, but they, but yeah. in a way that puts the, they're the reason why they can't have it. Not yeah. We this is your reason. fault. Yeah. We, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, time for some numbers. The one thing that I love even more than chemistry um, mm. Anna's really like hiding vegetables in the script for me. Um, eat your cookies. Like, There's zucchini in them. Uh, um, in his 2020 book, The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution, uh, scholar Dan Hicks compiled a list of the 161 institutions that have acquired Benin bronzes by various means. That Oh boy. That list includes one was like, oh boy. Various um, means. That list includes the But Metro- it's not limited to. Yes. Includes but is not limited to, where this is just like the bigger the bigger numbers. Yeah. Big names. Um or but like the larger Oh yeah, the large yes, the larger amounts of yep. Yep. Yeah. Um so the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, mm-hmm. uh, the Art Institute of Chicago. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the LACMA. The <laughs> Victoria and Albert Museum in London, um, which I like didn't did not make it far into. Um <laughs> gonna be fully transparent. I bailed <laughs> on that Unless. museum. I was just like nope. over me. 
I didn't get there. <laughs> didn't get to those. Um, the Vatican Museums. Cool. The Australian Museum, which is in Sydney. Um, that's like the National Museum. Um, yeah. 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 The National Museum of Ethnology in Osaka and the Louvre Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Yeah. Um, it's Callback. not a great it's not a great time to be the Louvre Abu Dhabi. It's not. It's it really, really isn't. not. It's an even worse time to be a former employee of <laughs> <laughs> So there are 45 UK institutions and 38 US institutions that hold Benin bronzes and nine Nigerian institutions. Um, several of these and other museums or collections have started to comply with the requests and demands from Nigerian parties that the bronzes be returned for an absolute this is good for an absolute masterclass in what um, Anna has elected to call delicate phrasing. Uh, look no further than the press statements released by museums planning to repatriate the bronzes. Um, no, it isn't called that. It's it's called the Horny Man Museum. <laughs> the Horniman Museum and Gardens. Mm-hmm. Just. <laughs> <laughs> Quote. The Horniman received the request from the Nigerian National Commission for Museums and Monuments in January 2022 and has since undertaken detailed research of its objects from Benin to establish which are in the scope of the request. The Horniman has also consulted with community members, visitors, school children, academics, <laughs> heritage professionals, and artists based in Nigeria and the UK. All of their views on the future of the Benin objects were considered alongside the provenance of the objects. End quote. Um, we asked some kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this here's a quote from the uh, from the chair of the trustees of the Horniman Museum of Gardeman, Gardeman's, uh, Gardens. Uh, <laughs> yep. Their name is Eve Salomon uh, saying, quote, the evidence is very clear that these objects were acquired through force and external consultation supported our view that it is both moral and appropriate to return their ownership to Nigeria. The Horniman is pleased to be able to take this step and we look forward to working with the NCMM to secure longer term care for these precious artifacts, end quote. So like the things that they're saying are all good. It's just, it's, I understand that you know, whatever the views of these current heads of museums or whatever, they have just some really tough history to try to talk their way they, around. They like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, also, don't stop there. No, no. If we're going to talk about things that were, uh, that, that arrived at the museum via force. Um, next yeah. up, we've got um, Jesus College. Uh, in Cambridge, yep. Jesus College, That's Cambridge. Matriculated. I um, I I went to high school with some folks that went to Jesus College. Hmm. It was unaccredited. Hmm. <laughs> this one is. Accredited. This is a joke about this. This is a joke yep. about Baptists. Um, yep. In response to a movement by students pushing for the return of a statue of a cockerel, uh, properly called an okukor, which um. I know I looked I really I looked up I tried to find the etymology of Okokor because I really hope that it's onomatopoeia yeah. for 
for the sound a, a rooster makes, but I have no confirmation of that. I, I so mean, tell, but also, tell me what they said. Also, if it were onomatopoeia, it would be like, <laughs> like that. Currently, the our my neighbor's rooster. Currently, his uh, morning exaltations sound like "Put your pants on." <laughs> Put your pants on. Okay, shut up. I'm going to read this statement okay. from Jesus College, Cambridge. Quote, Jesus College acknowledges the contribution made by students in raising the important but complex question of the rightful location of its Benin bronze, in response to which it has permanently removed the Okokor from its hall. End quote. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, a further statement said the college would now work with the wider university and commit resources to develop new initiatives with Nigerian heritage and museum authorities to, quote, discuss and determine the best future for the Okokor, including the question of repatriation, end quote. Um, the spokesman, the, the spokesperson added, quote, the college strongly endorses the inclusion of students from all relevant communities in such discussion, end quote. Um so that's like a really good like non-response. Yeah, like, it's like a, a lot of words that doesn't non-response. say anything. Yep. Um, that's a real like, we see you, we hear you. We're looking into it, but we're not though. Um, at the British Museum, a deal was struck last month. So August 2022 um, mm-hmm. between the British Museum and the Benin Dialogue Group um, that would see, quote, some of the most iconic pieces, end quote, in the historic collection returned on a temporary basis to form an exhibition at the new Benin Royal Museum in Edo State with th- within three years. So it's a repatriation effort as long as there's a sort of shiny new museum uh, to house the artifacts in three years time. So is this like temporarily? A, so, OK, great. Oh, cool. Yep. Um, yeah. So the good news, um, sort of, uh, is that that museum is already underway. It's being constructed. Um, and while the British Museum has a lot of ugly history to contend with, it seems like maybe they're re- they are really trying to accomplish this in a transparent way. Um, at least that's what the copy on the website says. Here is some of that copy from the official blog of the British Museum. Quote, it's a long one. Bear with me. The British Museum currently cares for more than 900 objects from Benin, a significant proportion of which came to the museum immediately after the conquest of Benin City in 1897. Today, Benin and its bronzes are the focus of international debates regarding cultural property and restitution. It is against this background that the Benin Dialogue Group developed. This group is a consortium of European, UK, and Nigerian museums, members of the Benin Royal Court, and representatives of Edo State Government. The group, which includes the British Museum, is working together to facilitate the construction of the new museum in Benin City to enable a permanent display of Benin works of art, including significant collections of works currently in UK and European museums, as well as objects in Nigeria. In addition to directly supporting the building of a new museum framed against current debates concerning Benin cultural property and the representation of Benin's history, it is intended that this Nigerian-British collaborative archaeological project can provide new opportunities to address the painful history of 1897, both through public engagement and critical debate. Here's the, the sort of carrot for the British Museum. 
A central focus of the archaeological project will be essential works on the proposed site of the future museum to preserve and record historical remains buried beneath the ground in advance of construction. The archaeology and historic restoration project will be delivered with the cooperation of local communities and in coordination with the Edo State Government and Ajaye Associates, as well as local urban, urban planning firms. The project will be led by a joint Nigerian and British team and will be developed together with a range of Nigerian researchers and academic institutions, the National Commission for Museums and Monuments, as well as other international researchers, end quote. So the British Museum gets to excavate. I don't think that this is an example that should be followed because this isn't repatriation. Repatriation is giving it back and letting them be the ones who decide what is done with it, letting the descendant community decide. This is bargaining like this is holding them hostage so that they will go along with something that they ultimately the the british museum will benefit more materially from this like this is a way to say like yeah we'll we'll help you like this is like bringing in stakeholders this isn't repatriation Uh, because like if they were to repatriate it they say it's yours what do you want done with it and like if it were transparent repatriation, they could say like, like you keep it there with like this set of criteria, like for sort of preserving it or keeping it or displaying it or not displaying it. And like, we'll give you a call when like, we're ready to take it back or they'll say, we want it back now. Like, this is not, this is like allowing, um, letting somebody sit at the table with you is not the same thing as like them being in charge. Like if the British Museum were actually committed to repatriation, they would bow out. Um, it's true, and they're not, and they get to do they get to do stuff like this, and like other other museums do the same thing. Like to actually repatriate something is to give it back and be like whatever happens That's to it, it from here on out yep. is on you because it's yours. Not saying like. Not being like, well, we we gave it back to you kind of thing and and not doing stuff on permanent loan, not doing anything like that because it never should have been there in the first place. If you were to like repatriate something, it's to acknowledge that like it has no patria at the place that it's in now. Yeah, and, it was stolen. And so this is just like this to me, because also like who they're bringing in and, and involved in, like this to me smacks of like neoliberal colonialism of like development and like we are helping them like and and like this is just what colonialism looks like in our current age um, yeah and so we'll build like, you a museum there are like you know we'll we'll help you um but there there are examples of um is it not the smithsonian that's like we're giving them back yeah the uh, smithsonian just, like, is just here um as far as i know yeah yeah. And we can, I mean, we can ask around and see if like that's actually happening, but like that's, so that's yeah. like what like upsets me about this is like, this is not, um, this is enough for them to say so that the people who are like big boosters of the British museum can be like, no, they're, they're reckoning with their history. Like this is good. They're still fundamental. Like they are still fundamentally good. That was a product of the time. This is the new time. Like we're doing this when it's like still the same like the same through line of like this museum is where stuff is the most deserving place where things belong. And like, this is like sort of an act of like generosity um, or sort of uh, it's the sort of like, we, 
we welcome like all like parts of the, the conversation. Like it's very like, um, it sucks. I'm not, I don't have a better yeah. solution. I'm not saying that. I mean, I think I do. It just like, give it back, give it back. And like, and it's not your business. So it's like, don't give it back and hope for the best. Just like give it back. Cause it was never yours. Um, kind of thing. And, um, and like if they give it back and it's not taken care of and it can't be like maintained, like that's not your problem, a, but also like to a, like Museum. up to like a certain point, that's kind of your fault too, because you yeah, like shouldn't have you, taken it. <laughs> well, no, like you, you like the sort of the British museum is, and we've talked about this several times and, and Dan Hooks talks about it and like the British museum received things that were spoils of war. Uh, that were like tributes or gifts or spoils like that's where the stuff went it was like sort of a national institution like it's, it is mm-hmm. right like is it it's like a public is it a public entity yeah um and so it's like that's how they got the stuff like that's <laughs> and um the admiralty went here you go yeah and like yeah it was like a gift to the queen by the the admiralty like that's mm-hmm. the, um, the boat boatmen's and and so that that the the system the 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 machine that kind of brought that stuff back um, is the same machine that um, like exploited sort of like you know like murdered exploited um, co opted economies of like all of those things of these places that have been. Um, that are now considered to be the developing world uh, because they were uh, not allowed to develop um, as they see fit or, or however. And, um, and so it's sort of like, well, well, yeah, of course they didn't. Of course, like if, if people are sort of grappling with more sort of profound uh, systemic or like kind of existential issues um like maybe now is when they're like getting to a place where they're like we want our stuff back like we want our identity back and the british museum is like we would love to help you break ground on a new museum uh, it's like <laughs> what <laughs> it's not what i said but yeah because it's yeah. it's like i uh, like because if like building a museum building a state-of-the-art museum to receive something and like a whole plan for how you're going to care for it and steward it and all that stuff. If that were enough for the British museum, the Elgin marbles wouldn't be there anymore. It's true. So, um, I see the last line here is any final thoughts. And I gave, <laughs> I gave them to everybody. Yep. You sure did. Um, no, that's good. That's good. That's very well put. I mean, like great, great. This is like, they, they, I mean, I guess this is better than like, no, shut up or like silence yeah. on the topic. Sure. <laughs> like, like they have on, on like BP, like BP, like, f- like footing the bill of these exp- exhibitions and then being like, oh boy. climate change. like that's like <laughs> that approach <laughs> is worse than this one. But I mean, mm. Yeah, so we can agree that there are worse approaches. This one is better than the worse ones. It's not great. This is that continuum from abstract to like, it looks exactly like the model. Like this is. 
Yep. This is abstract colonialism, I guess. Mm. Semi-abstracted. Okay, well, I mean, that's where things stand now. So in 1897, the bronzes were taken, and it's taken more than 100 years to to reach the point where we're... I mean, it's going to take longer before places but just things give are, stuff back. But things, things are, like, but but things have been moving. Like the like the mm-hmm. tide is turning on this, and there are more institutions that are like, oh, and Uh-oh. and so I do think that this is. Um, I, I do like. I don't want to. Uh, I please please don't let it. Please don't walk away from this thinking that like I think this is bad and this sucks. Like I think that this is. That that this conversation is happening is really good. That there are institutions that are like, oh yeah, that's yours, and and just sort of giving it back and being like, because like you know the formal because because now like, uh, Edo State and like the Nigeria like they're able to play the game. Like they have like they have like an institution and a body and representatives. And so they can like use the same vocabulary so they can like play the game with them um, by like conforming to like Western standards of, of sort of like Isn't that great? How, how that that's, stuff that's works. That's how that works. So yeah. that's kind of like what's happening. Um, yeah. But yeah, I. Um, it's I a little baby step in the right direction. I look forward to someday within my lifetime, hopefully having the opportunity to do a tourism um, Ooh, and a tourism. Um, go to um, go to Nigeria and be like, wow, look at all this cultural heritage. And if I can't get there, I look forward to having like like digitized and like digital humanities mm-hmm. opportunities to be like, wow. And to like kind of sit back and be like, oh, I can't see this, but I understand why it's in a place that I can't get to, but descendant communities can because yeah, they deserve good. to see it more than like <laughs> some like rando. <laughs> I look forward to putting on my 3D augmented reality visor <laughs> and being able to like walk around and look in, at and the be like a little. There will be like a little like diffuser that like puffs out like the smell of like the debris of ages. Ah. Oh, and it's just like like a like a sort of dust. tangy dust. Mm. It could be Hint like a little like metallic book. tang. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well. Top notes of bronze. Yep. Well, we Listeners, did it. We finally talked about it. It took so long for us to talk about it that people started giving them back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's you're welcome, everyone. Because um, because we because like we wanted to do this when it was like when sort of the stuff was was mounted and like when Dan Hicks book came out, like this has been a being like, Yeah, we gotta talk about like the case here. Like the case for reparate like the case for sorry, yeah. The, and it turns out re- uh repatriation. There's a good case because people are starting <laughs> to give stuff back. Yeah. Uh so that's good. That's that's good. And I'm glad that we finally got the chance to talk about it and hopefully provide some useful context. Um and yeah. sort of general information about Benin City because it's a really cool place uh, that Definitely. doesn't exist anymore. I mean, the the people do, the people exist, but the the actual like the earthworks and stuff are, for the most part, just sort of buried.
And so listeners, that was, that was it. That was the episode. And we will be back <laughs> in your ears next week with a new one, a different one. See, that's and like a, what a great way to end. Be like, that was it. We did it. That, that was it. Yeah. Uh, which you can find on whatever you're already listening to. You're listening to this. You found us just fine. You did it. I mean, um, unless like you're at a stoplight and the person next to you is like rolled their window down. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, we're on all of the major podcast platforms and most of the minor ones, too, I think. Yeah. Uh, and you can also find all of our back episodes uh, neatly archived at thedirtpod.com, where you can also find our resources for educators, links to support the show and other things. You can also also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. Thank you, everyone. We hope you learned from this episode. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.